CarMax is putting peace of mind back in car shopping by putting you in the driver's seat to find a ride that's right for you. Because at CarMax, we believe you shouldn't just settle for a car. You should love your car. That's why every car we sell is CarMax certified quality so you can be sure with upfront pricing that's the same for every customer. So don't settle. Find love at first drive and start shopping now at CarMax.com. CarMax, the way car buying should be. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. This episode of Speaking of Bitcoin on the Coindesk Podcast Network is brought to you by Nexo.io. Hello there. I'm George Frankly, and I'm going to take a look at how even the best and brightest people can make truly stupid decisions and terrible predictions, and what we can learn from them. This is Dare to be Stupid. This time on Dare to be Stupid, is there a master key out there to hack any account? Did your MySpace page pave the way to the biggest celebrity scandal of the decade? Mistakes were made, and it's the Rosetta Stone of passwords. I am, if nothing else, a man who learns from his mistakes. Months ago, I promised to stop talking about baseball. And recently I said I would focus on teaching statistics instead by making an example of The Simpsons. So, in 2010, the season 22 episode of The Simpsons, Money Bart, premiered, in which Lisa coaches a Little League baseball team using Moneyball-style applied sabermetrics. Okay, I'm just joshing you. I am yanking your chain. I'm not going to get into baseball here. But I have to quickly bring up baseball, specifically the study of sabermetrics, and how it directly connects to the, um, to the, uh, to the 2014 mass leak of celebrity nude photos, better known as the Fappening. Okay, but before I can dial it forward to 2014 and all of its salacious click-driving engagement keywords, we have to dial it back to the real beginning of the story, the year 196 BC. It is the later days of otherwise ancient Egypt, and what I can only assume is a hard-working scribe from the office typing pool is carving out a decree dictated by his boss, King Ptolemy V. This degree is meant to be put up in public and is printed in triplicate. One copy printed in traditional old Egyptian hieroglyphs, one repeat copy in the more common Egyptian demotic script, and one in the standard Greek of the time. 2,000 years later, a troop of French soldiers serving Napoleon were piling stones into a perimeter wall around their camp outside the Egyptian port town of Rosetta, and one lieutenant brilliantly noticed that there was some cool writing on this chunk. Over the course of the following century, the Rosetta Stone was coveted and relentlessly analyzed as the breakthrough to understanding Egyptian script. It was literally a cipher key, the same message written three ways. One in Greek, a well-understood language, one in Demotic, a somewhat understood Egyptian print, and one, most importantly, in traditional hieroglyphs, an almost entirely undeciphered Egyptian printed language at that time. Knowing what the message was intended to say in Greek allowed scholars to reverse engineer the Egyptian versions and crack the code unlike ever before. This key opened the doors to an entire language. Another two centuries later, when the Society for American Baseball Research, aka Sabre, started going in-depth into the statistical language of baseball, they realized they were already sitting on a Rosetta Stone of their own. Sabre already had one whole century of data of baseball games, not just scores and dates, but measurements, conditions, all sorts of details, 
They had all the information under their noses. All they needed was to read the patterns in the history and see if it could tell them the future. That was Sabermetrics. Finally, then, in 2014, a bunch of assholes were hungry for celebrity naughty bits, but they were all locked away on Apple servers. They didn't have amazing supercomputers or agents on the inside. They weren't going to crack the servers through any Hollywood cyberspace computer heist. They needed to speak the magic words. The real logins. The language of usernames and passwords. But what if a Rosetta Stone existed for that language, too? It turns out, one did. But we can't talk about that magic key just yet. We need to check our own vocabulary first. There's a lot of different words and different meanings for the arts of data insecurity. Sorry in advance for some of the layman explanations here, but I need to know we're all on the same page. First up is a simple fact that most of us already know. 99% of all hacks we see happening around us aren't hacks. When somebody steals your grandparents' Facebook accounts, it's usually the result of social engineering and old-fashioned con artist flim-flammery. They contacted a person under false pretenses, perhaps claimed to be from customer support somewhere, found out their password, and then used their Facebook wall to sell discount Ray-Bans. It's truly one of the great archetypal conflicts of literature. Man versus man, man versus self, man versus nature, and man versus paying too much for designer sunglasses. Those kind of scams are called phishing, but of course spelled with a PH, as in fish or fat. Or, hmm, this, that worked a lot better when I was still typing it out. Phonograph? Anyways, they usually go in cold, cast a wide net, and see who bites. Sometimes phishing scams will target clients or employees of a specific company, or pose as a specific trusted person in order to get more personal. That sort of targeted scheme is nicknamed spear phishing. This is pretty common, but sometimes it can be even simpler than that. The infamous 2008 hacking of vice presidential candidate Sarah Palin's personal email account was, as you can guess, not really hacking. It was barely even phishing. The then-governor of Alaska had a publicly known Yahoo.com email address, and 20-year-old college student David Colonel simply typed it in and clicked, I've forgotten my password. Her account recovery settings had security questions like, where did you meet your spouse, and what is your date of birth? This master computer hacker took 15 seconds to skim her Wikipedia entry and had all the information he needed. He then posted screenshots of his escapades on 4chan, where he forgot to redact parts of the screen containing his own email address, and it was a terrible day for private data everywhere. That was, very loosely, a spear phishing credentials attack. Realistically, it was just a total lack of human security practices. Back in the old days, we thought computers would render security moot by way of high-speed, brute-force attacks. A computer with its crazy fast processing computer brain would just rattle through every possible combination until it hit the right one. Our flimsy human fingers can't type that fast, but a computer can. This was actually demonstrated to great effect in the seminal 1991 computer science documentary Terminator 2 Judgment Day. Edward Furlong, playing the protagonist Anakin Skywalker or whatever, brute force hacks an ATM for easy money using an honest-to-god Atari portfolio laptop. He plugs his big old flip-top graphing calculator into the card reader, and it starts rattling down numbers until it settles on a correct pin. Sarah Connor's kid types in the pin and makes off with fast cash. But that's actually a pretty good example of why brute force attacks don't work. Brute forcing a four-digit numeric pin is pretty simple. Ten numbers, four digits, that's ten to the fourth power possibilities. Ten thousand pins. Ten thousand consecutive computer processes can go by pretty quickly. But an alphanumeric password... Assuming it's case-sensitive, and it includes numbers and symbols, even just for an eight-digit password, that's hundreds of quadrillions of possibilities. Blind brute-forcing through those combinations would be time-consuming. Too time-consuming even for modern computers. 
You could reduce that number with common sense. Say you just ran dictionary words in the target's language. This is literally known as a dictionary attack. That can reduce the possibilities to only a few hundred thousand, but it could miss out on unusual alphanumeric combinations. In the end, brute force attacks are largely defunct nowadays thanks to simple security measures. Nearly all website logins use some kind of brute force protection, usually limiting you to a small number of login attempts per session. Login attempts are slowed down, and too many incorrect attempts will lock down the account. Brute force becomes largely impossible. Unless you can narrow down those guesses. And human beings don't randomize things very well. Google Chrome is going to recommend you make your new password a 12-digit string of type nonsense, like a robot had a seizure inside a Gutenberg press. But you're not gonna. You're gonna make it something you can remember. And you're gonna do it again. Password reuse is one of the absolute most common avenues of data breach. The streak of ring camera hacks in 2020 was primarily the result of intruders finding user passwords from other different previous data breaches and just checking to see if they're still in use on other sites like Ring. While occasionally a nearby creeper would simply access the cameras from the home's own Wi-Fi, most of these horror stories came from total strangers across the internet shotgunning known combinations of usernames and passwords. This broad mix-and-match game of other known logins is called a credential stuffing attack, and at any given time, it is the most likely threat to your accounts. So, that's all the key words. How did these contribute to the grand celebrity scandal of 2014? Well, not in the way you'd think. The so-called fappening was actually a perfect storm of all the wrong decisions made at all the right times, allowing a downright weird combination of methods to actually work under very specific circumstances. The big gross caper required two major components, one ideal cipher key and one ideal door. And that key, the Rosetta Stone of passwords, had been found in 2009. When we come back, we'll finally crack the lid on one of the internet's dumbest artifacts. Looking for ways to step up your crypto game? Then go for Nexo. You can buy over 40 cryptocurrencies in seconds using your bank card, and you get free crypto rewards on each purchase or swap. How about earning guaranteed yields? Up to 17% paid out daily. Ideal for you hardcore hodlers. You don't even need to sell. Borrow instant cash or stablecoins against your crypto assets instead. Get the most out of your crypto with Nexo at Nexo.io. That's N-E-X-O.io. In the pioneering days of Web 2.0, the company RockU hit it big making gamified widgets and plugins for major social sites of the day, particularly MySpace and the upstart college kid website Facebook. People could sign up for RockU services and link their RockU account to their corresponding MySpace and, I don't know, Friendster accounts or whatever. RockU got reasonably popular, and by 2009 had over 30 million accounts. So it really sucked that they lacked even marginally competent data security with all those accounts. RockU was vulnerable to a SQL or SQL injection attack, where hostile actors could put in executable commands into a public-facing search bar and call up usually unretrievable backend information. It was a known hazard for nearly a decade at that point, and they hadn't bothered to update their protections in that time. In 2009, an unknown person found that vulnerability and looked into their databases, where they soon found that the login credentials for over 30 million accounts were all being stored in a giant, unencrypted, plain text table. An enormous, user-friendly document of millions of usernames, email addresses, and passwords was up for grabs. And, uh, yeah, they grabbed that shit. 
The 2009 Rocky leak was the sabermetric revolution for credentials. You see, it wasn't just a list of usernames and passwords in a vacuum. It was usernames and passwords with whole sets of associated account names, email addresses, Facebook and MySpace usernames, multiple columns of cross-referenceable data. It was enough statistics to assess demographics and deduce patterns. By allowing all lowercase passwords as short as five letters, the RockyLeak created an entire new dictionary for credential attacks. This was the Rosetta Stone. The revelations in this data were humiliating. The single most common recurring password, accounting for nearly 300,000 of the 30 million compromised users, was 123456. That was nearly one full percent of all the users on the site. Second and third place were 12345 and 12345678, respectively. And the rest of the top 100 was filled out by tragic open sesames such as Password, QWERTY, Monkey, Sunshine, Rainbow, Football, Princess, and my personal favorites, Rock You and Spongebob. By the time you get into the weeds of the upper 1,000, you'll have seen every conceivable girl's first name and many different numbers and misspellings of the word Inuyasha. The effective English dictionary for brute force attacks could be whittled down from 200,000 words to 10,000, now without losing much effectiveness. The accompanying account information was scraped to sort these into demographics. Based on public-facing MySpace profiles, you could associate the most common passwords among, say, women of a specific age bracket within a particular region. It was finally time for Moneyball for passwords. Credential stuffing attacks could be tailored to the person and the website in question. Does the site require at least one capital letter? Odds are good it's just the first letter. Require at least one number? Slap a one onto the end of all of them. And of course, none of that work is even necessary if the person is simply reusing the same password on RockU that they use everywhere else. For habitual password reusers, they had basically dropped their entire keychain on the sidewalk with an if-found-please-return-to tag. Over the years, other credential leaks have added to ever-growing documents of common logins. A recent file making the rounds, appropriately nicknamed RockU2021, compiles literally billions of logins from hundreds of leaks. So, how exactly did this bring us to the unsavory reveals of 2014? The refined password lists could reduce brute force dictionary attacks from potentially days or weeks of attempts to, within luck, minutes. But there's barely anywhere left on the internet where you can make repeated login attempts without getting locked out by brute force protections. Barely anywhere. But not nowhere. And just because all the front-facing pages of a site have protections doesn't mean that every single little corner shares them. Hackers were confident that the goods they wanted were stored on the Apple iCloud accounts of their countless iPhone-using targets, and every normal avenue of login had the basic protections that prevented brute force attacks. So, for many of them, they simply made official-sounding email accounts pretending to be Apple support and went spearfishing for info, and for many, this worked. But for others, they snuck around to what can only be described as the unlocked service door. You see, you can log into your Apple account from numerous pages and places within Apple's network of websites, but one page was unique. The Find My iPhone page, if you weren't already logged in, would prompt you to log in with zero restrictions on the number of attempts. The Find My iPhone page was a side door without a bouncer, and you could camp out in front of it for as long as it took you to jimmy the lock. It's unclear exactly who discovered it and when, but it appears that it was found in early August and brute force scripts were assembled within days. Known email addresses, and even more email addresses cultivated from phishing the previous ones, were combined with optimized dictionaries, and they simply hit the grindstone until it paid off. The rest is history. 
The fallout was understandably brutal, but often misleading. Plenty of people tried to moralize the idea that, celebrities being celebrities, they have no expectation of privacy. Or, less convincingly, that there's little wrongdoing in exposing them because they shouldn't have taken compromising photos to begin with. Just like the undisputed best mushroom for stir-fry, that's a shit take and not worth debate. But the press pontificated extra hard on whether or not the whole event was an indictment of cloud storage in general, or if everything was inevitably hackable, and how negligent Apple was with your data, and how there's no sense in using any technology ever because eventually information security is moot and we're all going to be naked and afraid in our iPhone cages eventually. But the truth is a lot muddier. Apple made the big mistake of leaving an access point for brute force attacks, and some evidence suggests they were warned of the vulnerability potentially months beforehand and failed to act. But then, would that vulnerability have even mattered if those users had stronger passwords? Any attempt at throwing stones there would require us to check our own houses first. Poor password practices are common among all of us. Managing a diverse stable of weird and capable login credentials is, simply put, exhausting. But it's a necessary skill in order to function in our modern world. Information security is a frustrating dance between systems and users that demands vigilance and coordination from both. The absurd web of failures that led to the 2014 leaks illustrates a critical truth about these grand failures. They're rarely just one mistake. People and systems are full of flexibility and redundancy. We're usually buffered against lone mistakes. But failures come from constellations. An incompetent social media site in 2009 a fumbled login page, a failure to follow up on security tips, and years upon years of user password recycling and poor practices. They're all nodes in a greater web, and it connects to plenty of other leaks and crises. Human beings are usually the weakest link in any system, and even crypto culture gets dragged down by our horrible, squishy, fleshy, fluid-filled, odorous, misshapen... Forgot where I was going with this. Right, the human experience is disgusting. But more to the point, secure systems have to weaken themselves just for our ease of use. Precious few people are going to memorize the 64 hexadecimal digits of their private keys, much less the paragraphs of ones and zeros that it represents. The brain wallet method is not popular or convenient. So, at first we stored wallet files, then we used passphrases and exchange accounts. For our own feeble convenience, we kneecap the inherent strengths of cryptography-based solutions by turning them into the same password-based credential systems as everything else. Every part of the publicized strengths of blockchain technology can be quickly dismantled by our own incompetence. Nobody ever brute forces a wallet, but plenty of passphrases and exchange accounts have been fished through the oldest fashion means. Even the legendary anonymity of Bitcoin was easily proven to be very conditional, as so many users of the Silk Road essentially drew their own treasure maps from their public addresses straight to their front doors by linking them to exchanges and domestic bank accounts. The FBI never had to crack a thing that wasn't already laid out in front of them. Plenty of rug pulls are revealed right away, because somewhere along the line the scammer left visible connections between their many wallets. The Rocky leak is, in many ways, superannuated and outdated. But it's also timeless. The Rosetta Stone didn't create the Egyptian language for us, it simply outlined for us a language that already existed. The Rocky leak laid bare a lot of the embarrassing truths of our own language when it comes to InfoSec. And that language has grown, but it hasn't fundamentally changed. Even today, learning a few maiden names and favorite pets will open a lot of doors for you. The arms race of password requirements, requiring a number, a symbol, a bunch more digits, is always countered by us taking the path of least resistance. The language of laziness is timeless. More and more companies are embracing two-factor authentication and more complex requirements. It's a step in the right direction, but ultimately, we need to change the language that we use. 
We can't count on systems to save us from ourselves. We have to be active participants in our own security. Think about your own language, your own alphabet, your own weaknesses, and find a dialect that's uniquely you. Everybody's already playing Moneyball with your data. It's up to you to change the playfield. And, honestly, don't judge. If there's one thing that I've been stressing every single week that I talk into this microphone, it's that we're all a bunch of goddamned idiots. The human brain is a charming, clumsy mess, and there's very few mistakes other brains have made that yours isn't capable of as well. Better practices have always grown from mistakes, ours and theirs. And just as importantly, the freedom and privacy to do what we want with our own data and our own bodies is paramount. A community isn't a community without it. Oh, and read Moneyball already. I mean, God. Thanks for listening. Remember, no matter how smug I make it sound, all of my job titles are of the armchair variety. If you're an expert and I'm getting it wrong, I'd like to hear about it.